morning we find ourselves back in Matthew chapter 24. And uh, we're closing in on the end of this chapter, and we've got one more chapter to go on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 25. But we come to a very exciting, I think, and thrilling passage for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there around you. Ask somebody, they'll find one in the chair around you there. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 29 to 35. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 35. This is the great text on the actual second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's not somebody else telling us this, it's him. It's his words, they're coming out of his mouth. And uh, if you've ever been in a bookstore in the last several years, you've seen books written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins entitled The Left Behind Series. Um, we're trying to secure Tim LaHaye to come back in November of this year with David Hawking. David will be back in November. And uh, if not this year, he'll be maybe the next year. But uh, hopefully he can come this coming November with David. But we see these books, the Left Behind series that he wrote. And to say that they're a uh, success is an understatement. The Left Behind series has sold over 63 million copies um, which is probably even more uh, now. Um, it's kind of a dated statistic. But the Left Behind series, if you're not familiar with them, it's, it's a book, a series of books written about the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, and so forth. And these books are sold by the millions. And the reason they're sold is because people are interested in that subject. When you talk about end times, when you talk about prophecy, it kind of just maybe gives a little tickle in people's ear or in their heart, and they say, you know, I, I want to check this out. I want to know a little more about what's going to be happening in the end times. And so millions of people have bought those books. And as we come to the study here this morning of the coming of the Christ, the second coming of Christ, we've been looking at Matthew chapter 24 the past several weeks, and we're aware of the very fact that the world as we know it will one day end. It's going to end with the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to earth from heaven. It's going to be his second coming. And yeah, that should be an amen. I mean, we should be looking forward to that time. Um, the first time he came in humility, remember? He was born in a manger. The first time he came and he died on a cross for the sins of those who would put their faith and trust in him. The second time, the Bible says that he's going to come in glory. He's going to come not in humility at all. He's going to come in glory. He's going to come to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the Lord wanted to instruct his disciples. Now remember, it's just him and his disciples at this point. On the matter of his second coming, because they asked him a question and they wanted to know, when is this going to happen? Well, follow along as we read... Matthew 24, verses 29 to 35. Beginning in verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power 
and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then he gives a parable beginning in verse 32. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Father, we pray that you would enable our hearts to understand the words that are before us. Pray that you would give us discernment and clarity of thought just to be able to focus the next few moments as we look at these verses together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here the Lord himself tells us about the greatest event, the greatest anticipated event ever of any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's his second coming, that he is actually going to come back, come back here physically to the earth. He came once and he will come again. Now, as Jesus was leaving the earth after his first coming, remember he was born in a manger, he lived 33 some years, he died on a cross, was buried. Three days later he rose from the dead. In his resurrected body he walked around, had contact with people. And then he was ascended back to his father in his glorified state. We know that because in Acts chapter 1, it tells us that. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So when he left, it was kind of like, hey, I'll be back. And I'm coming back the same way I'm leaving. As he went, he will return, physically, bodily, in the clouds, and physically come back to this earth. That's one of the distinguishments between the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church. People get confused. They think that the rapture, well, that must be the second coming. He's coming back. No, he doesn't come back to the earth. The Bible is very clear about that. The rapture is when he comes in the clouds in the church. Those who have put their faith and trust in Christ are caught up. That's what the word rapture means. It means to be caught away, caught up. They're caught up. All those who have trusted in Christ will be caught up to meet him and be taken to heaven to be with him for that seven-year tribulation period. So as he departed, he will return. You know, and this was a promise to his disciples, by the way. If you turn over to John chapter 14... A lot of times we use this text, if you've ever uh, done a funeral, anything like that, a lot of times people, you'll you'll go to a funeral, you'll hear this text being uh, taught, being shared with the people. And I just want to read it for you because in verse 3, Jesus gives his disciples a promise here. And look at verse 1 of John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's houses are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be 
also. I don't know about you, but that's, that's exciting to me. To know that Christ hasn't forgotten about us. <laughs> that even though it seems like the wheels are falling off the cart down here on planet Earth, there'll come a day when the clouds part and he will return for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Who put their trust, their faith in him for their salvation. Now, we've been looking the last couple weeks at some very troubling times that are going to come upon planet Earth. Very troubling. I mean, we've had a lot of messages, just the last three messages, dealing with the tribulation. You see a lot of calamity. You see a lot of death. You hear about tribulation after tribulation, trouble, earthquakes, famine, all these things, persecution. And you say, well, where's the hope in that? Are you serious? Sounds like a lot of trouble is coming around the bend. Why would I be hopeful? Who's going to be hopeful about earthquakes and famine and persecution? I want to share with you, out of these verses right here this morning, just quickly as a way of introduction. If you've been listening to the last several messages and you think, but I don't see any hope in that. Well, if you're left here for those times, you're right. There's not a lot of hope. (laughs) But you're not. You're here today. So there's still hope for you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to look at a couple reasons why we should not be troubled concerning all these things we've been studying as believers. Five of them, quickly. First of all, we know Christ. We know Christ. We know who He is. We know that He is God. We know from Scripture that the Word of God tells us that Jesus and God knows all about us. They know all about our circumstances. Nothing catches them off guard. So there's every reason to trust Him. He's our Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that they know how many hairs are on your head or how many are not there. They know all that stuff. And so it's very clear that the first thing that we need to make sure that we understand so our hearts are not troubled is that we know Christ. I want to ask you this morning, do you know Him? Not just about Him, but do you know Him in a personal way? Do you know Him as your Savior? Because see, a lot of times you hear people say, well, Jesus died for the whole world. Well, yeah. But you know what? He also died for you. When He was dying on Calvary, your name was on His mind. And so when you stop and you think the very simple fact, do you know Jesus? Do you know who he is? Have you trusted him? Because that's what he's telling his disciples here. He says, basically, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What he's saying is, I know you trust God. I know you believe in God. A lot of these these disciples were from a, a Jewish background. Of course they believed in God. He said, well, you also have to trust me because I am God. That's his statement. Trust also in me. Now think about it. The disciples didn't get the whole idea that his second coming was going to be thousands of years away as we've been studying. So they thought it's all going to happen right now. And then Jesus is starting to talk about, well, wait, I'm going to go away. And they're going, wait a minute, this isn't done yet. The temple's still standing. Roman soldiers are still over us. Aren't you going to deliver us? Aren't you our Messiah? 
They thought it was all going to happen real quick. And so he has to let them know that they need to be trusting in him. Believe that he's saying to them, believe, I know what I'm doing here. I'm going away with a purpose. And that purpose will be accomplished. And after it's accomplished, I will return to you so that we can be together once again. And this he proclaimed to them in the, the literal, in the, in, literally in the face of his own execution. So that's the first reason why the disciples and us shouldn't be troubled. They knew Jesus. They had every reason to trust him. The second thing here, the second reason Jesus gives them why they should not be troubled is that there's a place prepared for them in heaven. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I I hope that one thing you understand about Christ is he, he doesn't jerk you around. He doesn't tell you one thing and then do another. He doesn't promise you one thing and then deliver something else. If you know anything about Jesus Christ, his word is his word. He's truthful. He's honest. He has integrity. He has character. He's holy. He's God. He cannot lie. And so when he says there's a place for those who trust in Christ, those who follow him, there's a place for us in heaven, that should give us a little bit of uh, hope in the midst of all this craziness, even today. And in the tribulation time, it's going to be ten times worse, hundred times worse. The third reason Jesus gave his disciples why They should not be troubled, and by default we shouldn't be troubled as those who follow Christ, is that he personally is going to go and prepare a place for them. The God who, when you go outside and you look at the flowers and you look at the mountains and you look at the seas and you look at all the sorts of things, you go down the Monterey and you look at the the Monterey Aquarium and you go in there and you see some of these jellyfish and some of these fish, they're just so exotic looking. They're beautiful. And you come to realize that he created all that. And he's preparing a place for me? Wow. What a blessing that is going to be. It's a place in heaven. It's a place called heaven. Jesus is going there. But he says, you know what? Until you get there, I'm working on a place for you. If you've ever been through the process of a remodel or reconstruction or anything like that, you know that process takes some time. Well, think about this, beloved. God created the world, okay, six days. Six days. That's the power of our God. He said it and it happened. I think he's been working on our places a little longer than six days. What an exciting thing to look forward to. The fourth reason Jesus gave his disciples why we shouldn't be troubled is that he says in verse 3 that he's coming back. He says, if I go and I prepare a place for you, he says, I will come back and take you to be with me. He promises that he will return for those he's left behind. 
don't know if you've ever been left behind somewhere on a trip or anything like that. And the bus leaves and you're not on it. It's not a good feeling. And it's a real good feeling when you see that bus. Oh, wait, we lost somebody. And they come back and oh, there he is. It's a good feeling to realize that, wow, they're coming back. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back for those who put their faith and trust in him, beloved. And the fifth reason, quickly, is is that basically he said, hey, don't be troubled because from that point on, you're going to be with me. In verse 3, he says there of John 14, that you also may be where I am. We will, from that point forward, we will always be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And through all the history of the church, Christians have been looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, over in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Waiting, look at what it says in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. What is it? What's the blessed hope of those who've trusted in Christ? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What says there in Titus is that those of us who know Christ, those of us who are saved, should live righteously. We should live soberly. We should be denying ungodliness. We should be denying those worldly lusts and passions that call our heart every day. And we should be looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to live obedient lives. That's kind of clear throughout Scripture as believers. We're to live righteous lives. But as much as that is a priority, we should also make a priority the focus of the return of Jesus Christ. That we should be focused on that. That we should be excited about that. Because that is our hope as believers. That's our glory. Now, we're all familiar, basically, with the circumstances of Christ's first coming, right? I mean, we all celebrate what? Christmas, right? We all have that time of the year where, you know, maybe the little children do a presentation or you read a story or you read devotions or maybe just sing some carols about the Bethlehem and the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and the star and Herod and Joseph and Mary and golden frankincense and myrrh and the song of angels. We all know all about that. But I think we're far, far less familiar with the story of Christ's second coming. Even though the prophets, including the greatest prophet of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave us very clear instructions concerning his second coming. And here in these verses, verses back in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 35, the Lord himself instructs our hearts as it pertains to his second coming. And so let's look at these verses together and just walk through this. And the first thing we see here is that he affirms it will happen in verse 29. He says, immediately. Immediately. Here we see the exaltation of the Messiah in all his glory. And then later on in verses 32 to 35, we see this explanation of this parable. But first of all, let's look at the exaltation of the Messiah in all his glory. 
because we see here a clear chronology of the coming of the, of the soon and coming Christ. It's very clear. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. Very clear chronology. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So it tells us that the Lord's second coming in glory to set up his kingdom will follow immediately this time period called the tribulation. That word tribulation means trouble. It means distress. And we've been studying about all the distress and the trouble that's going to come on the world the last several weeks. So this isn't talking about just any tribulation. It's talking about the tribulation of what? What's it say? Those days. So Jesus Christ is saying to his disciples, in the future, there's going to be a time where just things rain down here on earth. It's not going to be a fun time. It's going to be a time of great tribulation. And that was described for us in verses 4 to 28. In matter of fact, in verse 21 of chapter 24, it says that this is a tribulation like none other. It's such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, never will be. So this is the tribulation of all tribulations. It's the worst tribulation the world has ever known. And we recall, we've been studying how that Great tribulation begins. There's seven years that begins with a peace treaty with Israel and the Antichrist. Basically what happens is all the nations of the world pile up against Israel and the Antichrist raises himself up as a world leader through peaceful means, promising peace. And he basically deceives everybody to the point where even Israel themselves sign a peace treaty an agreement with this Antichrist. Because they don't know he's the Antichrist, clearly. And all the nations pile up against Israel, and the Antichrist is so powerful, he's able to defeat them all. And so they just think, boy, this is the best. This guy's allowing us to worship, everything's going fine. Well, that's the beginning of that seven-year period. Three and a half years into that seven-year period, verse 15 says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And we talked about that abomination of desolation, what that was. The Jews are practicing their sacrifices in their temple. All of a sudden, this world leader whom they signed a treaty with marches into the temple desecrates it, tears down the altar, builds up an altar, puts himself in place and demands everybody worship him. The abomination of desolation. It desecrates everything that is sacred. And the Jews will not return to that place. That begins, that time, when that happens, when you see that Jesus is saying, when that, when that individual goes in there to that temple and desecrates it and sets himself up to be worshipped, you better watch out. He says, you better run. And you better run fast. Because at that point, he's going to turn his wrath, the Antichrist is, not only on Israel, but on all those who are unwilling to bow their knee to him, including those who trust in Jesus Christ. 
Daniel 9 pointed that out to us. The Antichrist will break that covenant and he will desecrate, he will abominate, he will blaspheme the sacred place of the Jews. And at that point in time, there's going to be what the Bible calls a great tribulation. The second half of those seven seven years, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. It's going to be a horrible time. It's going to be a time of deception, a time of war, famine, earthquake, persecution, hatred, false prophecies, false prophets will rise up. It's going to be a time when evil is so rampant that many people who are part of the religious groups, you understand that every church has people in it that are, quote, religious. (laughs) Every church does. You know, people that come to church and put the smile on and, oh, praise the Lord. But unfortunately, some of those people have never bowed their knee to Christ. Unfortunately, some of those people have never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're still lost in their sin. They're religious. They may come to church faithfully. I went to a church for 19 years of my life faithfully. Served in the church. Went to all sorts of events at the church. And it was all for naught. Because I didn't know who the Lord Jesus Christ was. I didn't understand that he died for me. I didn't understand that, you know what, it's by grace that I'm saved, not of works, as some churches teach. Oh, you've got to do this, you've got to be baptized, or you've got to join the church, or you've got to do this, or you've got to you know, go to confession, or you've got to, you know, the, the, the list continues on and on and on. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in order to be saved, you basically have to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is. You have to understand that He is God. You have to understand that He lived on this earth a perfect life, that He died, that He was buried, and for three days He laid in the grave, and he, then at the third day He rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death. And He did all that for you. And He paid the price for your sin. That's what the gospel says. And when you turn from your sin, you turn from yourselves and you turn to Christ. The Bible says he saves you. You don't get saved on your own. You know, I can't stand up here and preach a sermon saying, okay, you just got to try harder, you know, just try to be holier. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go out there and give it your best shot. Maybe you'll make it, I don't know. But at least give it a try. What kind of hope is that? In a way, I thank God that he lays it out very clear. He says, you know what? You're all in the same boat. You've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. Doesn't matter who you are. I mean, I grew up in a church where, you know, you had this this line. And you had certain people that, 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 that served the church. And boy, they were just holy. Matter of fact, they even wore robes that made them look holy. And then I'd see those same people at a reception after one of my sister's weddings. After, not weddings, wedding, excuse me. I have two sisters, so. But after a wedding, I see this same holy man who just 
was dressed in his robe and doing the incense deal and, boy, speaking very authoritatively. I see him drunk, smoking cigarettes at a reception. And I looked at that and I said, well, what's the disconnect here? Wait a minute. How is this right? And I didn't even know Christ and I came to that conclusion. So there's people that are very religious and this time of tribulation is going to be so devastating that people who appear to be religious will defect from their religion and they'll abandon themselves to evil, the Bible says. It's going to be the worst time the world has ever known. As a matter of fact, it says unless the days are shortened, and we looked at this last week, literally the daylight is going to be condensed. God is going to do this supernaturally. The Bible says unless that happens, no one will survive because the Antichrist is just going to be slaughtering everyone. Matter of fact, the the results of that in verse 28 are described as roadkill, carcass of a dead animal. That's what's going to be left. It's a time of gross evil like we've never seen before. And that's why in verse 16, after verse 15, talks about the abomination of desolation. In verse 16 it says, hey, when this happens, you better run. You run as fast as you can. Flee to the mountains. Because it's going to start right in Judea and Jerusalem, and there's going to be a slaughter that just makes all other holocausts look like nothing. Better hope you're not pregnant. Hope you're not carrying your little baby, feeding your baby, because the Antichrist is going to slaughter them as well. Better hope it's not in the winter or raining. Hope it's not on the Sabbath if you're Jewish because the religious people of that day wouldn't, wouldn't want you to run on the Sabbath. <laughs> They'll stone you. You better hope you get out because a slaughter is going to take place like no other slaughter in the history of the world. We've gone through all that in the, ver- the last couple weeks. Now in verse 29 it says, immediately after that. All that mayhem, immediately after those, the tribulation of those days, is the chronology for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here that there's certain signs that will take place. Now, everybody is not going to be murdered. We looked at last week how two out of three Jews will be slaughtered. But that third that's left over, the Bible says that supernaturally somehow they're taken by the angel Michael out into the wilderness and hid and cared for. Miraculously, they survive. The Bible also speaks, and we're not going to get into it this morning, but of 144,000 Jewish believers, people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are divinely protected by God himself, and they go throughout the whole world, 12,000 from every tribe. And they go out through the whole world and they preach the gospel to those who have yet to hear it. They're going to be divinely protected. Everybody else is fair game. Now this period is not going to last a long period. It's 42 months. It's three and a half years. And so immediately after that time period, that's when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Well, how's he set this up? Look at the signs. It says in verse 29 that there's, there's signs that are going to take place. First of all, the sun will be darkened. 
And the moon will not give its light. Obviously, the moon doesn't have light of its own. It reflects it from the sun. So if the sun goes blank, so does the moon. Isaiah 13, verse 10 says, For the stars of the heavens in their constellation will not give their light. The the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of arrogance. And lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. God is coming back, beloved. And when he comes back, he's not coming back as Savior. He's coming back as judge. Joel chapter 2 verse 30 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And after the great and awesome day of the Lord, of, of, before the, day, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be, what? Saved. There's still an element of God's grace available there, which is just amazing to me. You see these signs happening in the sun, the moon, the stars. You also see the shaking of heaven. It says in the stars in Mark thirteen twenty five will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Luke gives us a different account. It says in, in chapter 21, verse 26 of Luke, twenty-one twenty-six, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. See, this isn't just the powers of the heaven being shaken as if earth was some kind of detachment from it. No, the whole thing's being shaken up. And it's so dramatic, it's so cataclysmic that it says there in that verse, Luke, it says actually that literal Greek says that men's, men will expire. Men will die in fear for their lives. You ever been scared? You ever been frightened? Yesterday I got home, my wife was taking a nap. So I just went in the office and I was doing some stuff in the extra bedroom there. And I kind of heard her get up from the couch. And she went in the bathroom. And I didn't know what she was doing, but she came in the bedroom. And as soon as she saw me, I mean, she was terrified. (laughs) Wow, what are you doing? I didn't know you were here. You know, I didn't even try to scare her, but she was truly frightened. It's not a fun thing to be frightened. Well, in these days, people are going to be so frightened that they literally, whether it's by heart attack or, or what, they literally drop dead. That's how horrible this is going to be. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 13 says, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place. This is very interesting. At the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Four areas here that's going to be affected. The laws of gravity are going to be affected. The planet and the stars are going to be affected. Political structures are going to be affected, as well as demonic forces. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, we don't wrestle against what? Flesh and blood as believers, but we, we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces, listen to this, of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, this is going to be a time, and it's hard for us to really get our head around this and understand this, because it just seems so far out. But beloved, 
it will happen. The powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, if you've ever talked to a physicist or a scientist of any, and you get down to the smallest thing of the atom, they're always left scratching their head. Because you've got these things there flying around, and they're thinking, what's holding everything together? What's holding it all together? I mean, if I take something on the end of a rope and I start swinging it around, what's going to happen? It's going to go out, right? And if I leave go, it's going to go flying. I'm the one that's holding it together. What's holding all matter together? Why doesn't it just go boom? Because there's control. There's a, there's a controlling influence. Everything is held together by power. And you say, well, what kind of power is that? In Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us. In Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says that the Son of God himself upholds all things, listen to this, by the word of his power. It's God himself in the Son who holds everything together. Just as he created everything, he holds everything together so that the gravity doesn't fluctuate. If I hold this pencil up here and drop it, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. If I pick it back up and say, what do you think is going to happen this time? It's going to fall. I could stand here and do this for 10 years. It's going to fall every time. There are certain things in our universe, in our world, that don't fluctuate. One of those things is orbits. They don't really fluctuate that much. As a matter of fact, they calculate all of that based on unchanging fixed powers. They know exactly where everything's going to be. A lot of you know John Wood, who's in the aerospace industry, and every once in a while he'll send me an email. And in the email, he's down in L.A. now, he used to work for Lockheed. But he's, in the email he says, hey, he gives me a chart. I, I don't even know what it's called. It's some scientific name. But basically, he showed me how to read it. And if I look at the chart right, if I go out, say on a Tuesday night on a certain date, at a certain time, and I look up 10 degrees to the southwest, you're going to see the space station. you only see it for like 10 seconds, but you'll see it. And I tried it. One time after Wednesday night Bible study, Steve was all excited. Yeah, it's, it's coming, you know. It's, it's going to be tonight after. So we kind of got out there and looked, and, and I think it was Peter and I. We went out there. Sure enough, man, it's the space station. He said it would come right down Jetter, and it sure did. It looked like an airplane without the blinking things. It was amazing. I mean, it was way up there. Don't get me wrong. It looked like a star that was moving real fast. But how do they know that? Because it's so exact. That's why all that stuff doesn't run together. God has put things together with order, consistency, predictions. They're all held together by the power of the word of Christ. And you know what, beloved? One day, Jesus is going to say, okay, you know what? I'm letting go. <laughs> and when he lets go, literally, all hell is going to break loose. The powers that normally hold the universe together no longer will do that. You're going to have chaos with all the heavenly bodies randomly running through space. The earth becomes a victim of this incredible breakdown of the whole universe. He says there the sun goes black. Can you, can you imagine no sunlight? Well, we're not going to survive very long. 
Can't survive without that. Think of the temperature change then. (laughs) I think the moon will be affected to some degree. That's what it says. So obviously our tides will be chaotic instantly. In Revelation it says the heavens are rolled up like a scroll and the stars begin to fall like shaking overripe uh, figs off a fig tree. The whole universe, beloved, begins to just fall apart, to disintegrate. There's a scientist who does a lot of these calculations with the axis of the earth and degrees and all this stuff. And here's what he wrote. He said, if, if a heavenly body was loose in space and it happened to pass close to the earth, and just close enough to cause the earth to tilt, just a fraction on its axis, here's what he says would happen. At that very moment, the, an earthquake would happen. It would make the earth shudder. Earth or air and water would continue to move through inertia. Hurricanes would sweep the earth and the seas and would rush over the continents carrying gravel and sand and marine animals and casting them on the land. Heat would be developed. Rocks would melt. Volcanoes would erupt. Lava would flow, cover vast areas. Mountains would spring up from the, the plains and would travel and climb on the shoulders of other mountains causing faults and rifts. Lakes would be tilted and emptied. Rivers would change their beds. Large land areas with all their inhabitants would slip under the sea. Forests would burn and the hurricane and wild seas would, would uh, uh, rest from the ground on which they grew and pile them branch and root in huge heaps. Seas would turn into deserts. Their waters flowing away. I mean... I wonder if Al Gore's read this. <laughs> I mean, seriously. In other words, the Lord is saying, just before he comes, this is going to take place. And then we see here the sign of the sun in verse 30 as well in Matthew 24. It says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now, you can go to commentaries and you can read, well, what is this sign? What is this? What, is it something cosmic? What is it? Well, I'm kind of a literalist, and I just take it at face value because maybe I'm just not smart enough to figure something else out. I can't figure out what else this might mean. And basically, it says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Literally, what it's saying is the sign is the Son of Man, who's going to appear in heaven. I mean, it's amazing what commentators write on that verse. They go off on all these rabbit trails. Well, it could be this, it could be that. What tells you what it is? Let's just keep it simple for us with small IQs. But you have to understand, the world has never really seen the unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they will see it then. The sign then is going to be the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ coming in majesty. It will be very distinguishable. It will be recognizable. And yet he will be in his full glory. Look at the end of verse 30 because it tells us what this is going to look like. He says he's going to be coming on the what? On the clouds. Coming on the clouds. The same way he left. Remember I told you? Acts chapter 1 verses verses 9 to 11. 
Same way he left, he's going to come back. He went in the clouds, he's coming back in the clouds. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 says he will come in the clouds of heaven. Revelation chapter 1 7 says, John says he will come with clouds. Mark chapter 13 verse 26 says that he will come in clouds. Luke 21 27, he'll come in a cloud. Matthew here says he will come in a cloud. And even later in 26, uh, 64, he says the same thing. So everybody that's writing within the confines of Scripture agrees that when he comes, he's going to come surrounded with clouds. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Every eye shall what? See him. Every eye. Every eye will see him. That's the sign. He's going to come in his glory. The Shekinah glory of God is going to appear through the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to come down out of the clouds. Back to earth. And everybody will see it. Now remember, we're not going to be here. Those who have trusted in Christ, we're going to be in heaven. We're going to be raptured out of here. I believe seven years before this event happens, the second coming of Christ, before the tribulation even starts, that seven-year period, we will be taken out. And the reason I believe that is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, says that we will be kept from the hour that comes to try the whole earth. And even over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, says that we will be delivered from the wrath to come. I mean, think of the Noah and the ark. You know, that's a picture for us. We'll be safe. And I think we'll be with the Lord. And you say, well, we're not going to be here to see it. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3, because this is, this is interesting. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to hurry along here. Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> Look at verse 4. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears... What's it say? Then you also will appear with him. Where? In glory. In glory. He comes in his glory and he appears for the whole world to see. And you know what? Those who have trusted Christ are going to be right there with them. We're going to be appearing with him in glory. When he appears... Those of us who know him, those of us who have trusted him for salvation who love Him, who follow Him. The Bible says that we've been risen with Christ. That's what it says in verse 1 of Colossians 3. If you have been raised with Christ, if you seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, if you set your minds, verse 2, on the things that are above, not on things on the earth. Verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You meet those qualifications, then when Christ appears, who is your life, you will appear with him in glory. You're going to appear with him. What a glorious thing. I mean, that, that is just going to be a real incredible experience. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, it tells us, it's giving us a picture. Basically, Revelation 19 gives us a picture of our time in heaven. Remember, at the beginning of the tribulation, before it even starts, that seven-year period, Christ comes back, we're raptured up to be with him. 
Okay? So we're in heaven during this whole seven-year period. And we're in heaven during this period of time, and it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the idea is it's, it's a marriage supper. We're the bride of Christ, the church. And he's having a celebration because we're reunited with him in glory. And the wife comes into the presence, the church comes into the presence of Christ when the church is raptured. So verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, those who have trusted Christ, those who are part of the church, has made herself ready. Verse 8, It was granted her to clothe herself, look at this, with fine linen, ladies, and even men, fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So when the church is taken in the presence of the Lord at the marriage supper, we sit down for the Lord and we fellowship with him during that whole seven-year period. I mean, talk about a potluck. All right, we're going to have one. We've been delivered from the wrath to come. We've been saved out of the damnation that's coming on the earth. We're not there because we've trusted Christ. We commune with the Lord and we are rewarded and robed in fine linen. And then you look down at verse 14. It says, In the armies of heaven, still in Revelation 19, arrayed in what? Fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. I don't know if you like to ride horses or not. I used to ride them when I was little. We had a bunch of Arabian horses growing up. But that's what we're going to be doing. Amazing. And you can read the rest of that on your own, but it's a, it's a very exciting time. So these armies that were in heaven, those who were already redeemed, and even those who were in the church, those who were the Old Testament saints, who are the invited guests, they're not the bride, they're invited guests to the marriage supper because they were before the church age. But if you stop and think about that, it's going to be a blessed time. In verse 9 it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, we're going to be there because we're the bride. You don't invite a bride to the wedding. If you, as a bride, ever, you know, you get a, do you get an invitation to your own wedding? No. That'd be kind of silly. So the bride's the church. The invited guests are the Old Testament saints who have gone on before us. And so when all this happens, think of this. You're going to be there. You're going to be there. Only you're going to be looking down (laughs) as you come with the Lord in glory rather than looking up. See, some people who weren't ready when the Lord took His church, who weren't redeemed, will be left there. Many will die, as we've clearly seen throughout Scripture. But there's also many redeemed people who will be looking up. Looking for the glorious appearing of Christ. What a glorious day that's going to be. There are going to be those who are redeemed in that day, who were saved out of the tribulation, who weren't killed by the Antichrist, who weren't killed by the persecutors or the betrayers or haters of God. They survived, protected by maybe the Michael, Michael the Archangel, or, or maybe they were one of the 144,000, who knows. 
They're protected by the mercy and grace of God. There's going to be Jews and Gentiles still on the earth. They're going to be looking up when Christ comes, and we're going to be looking down as his church comes back. There won't be any more scoffing then. Where is the promise of his coming? Boy, it'll be a reality. Back to Matthew 24, you see here not only the sign of the sun, but you see a sight of an enormous army. Enormous army. It says in verse 30, 31 there, at the end it says, He will come with power and great glory, and he will descend, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. The angels of God are known as the gatherers. They gather men. Usually in the Bible, we've seen in parables, even in Matthew, where the angels go out and they gather men for judgment. But here, here it's going to be a little different. They're going to be gathering men and women and believers for glory. Zechariah 14.5 says this, And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Second Thessalonians 1.7 says this, And to grant relief to those who are afflicted during this time, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he's coming back with a vengeance. And we also see the the saints, as we just looked at, coming back with him as well. In Revelation 19, we saw that. We're going to be riding on white horses. I mean, can you imagine the power that's that's just, when, when, when God... When Christ releases everything and everything just starts to go crazy. The whole earth is rocking on its axis. He has the power over created universe. He has the power over Satan. He has the power over demons. He has the power to slaughter all the ungodly, Christ-rejecting unbelievers worldwide. And he will have the power to establish his kingdom. And he has the power to redeem his elect. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ has power like none other. Just amazing. What an incredible thing it would be when his feet touch down on the, Zacharias says, the Mount of Olives. I believe as soon as his feet touch that, that Mount of Olives, I think with his supernatural power, everything that was set array, everything that was just careening out of control is going to just stop. Because he will be in control. Daniel 9.24 says he finishes sin. He ends transgression. And he will bring them into a great judgment. Those who are left there who, who are not Christ's followers. And we'll read about that in Matthew 25 when we get there. But eventually they're sent into a place called hell. To spend all eternity. He brings in everlasting righteousness. He sets up his kingdom. And yet, not all is happy at his coming. It says, then all the tribes of heaven will mourn. Those who are not following Christ are going to mourn. 
those who have put their trust in government and all the social means of the day, calling for world peace, all these things, they're going to see the world just totally collapse on itself. And you can see why they would be mourning. I mean, think of the people today that, that, you know, I mean, we really live in a culture today that they worship Mother Earth. People worship the Earth. I mean, if you don't believe that, just go talk to some of these people. I mean, you know what? You, they, they'll go out and stand on a, on a corner in the rain, you know, petitioning to save some whale somewhere. But it's okay to slaughter an unborn child. I mean, where have our priorities gone to? So you can imagine in that day when they see their, their earth that they're worshiping just collapsing on itself, raining terror upon terror, they're going to mourn. And it's not just the Gentiles, but the Jews also. Zechariah 12 says, They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son. They will realize at that point that they've pierced their Messiah, that they've killed their Messiah. In Zechariah 13, you can read this on your own, but it talks about a fountain of cleansing that will be opened up to them and their redemption will draw near. And it's at that point, then all the work that the 144,000 Jews who've gone out and shared the gospel with, I think at that point, that's when it, it culminates and that's when people turn to Christ. And it says... All Israel will be saved. Romans 11 says that. Because they will truly have godly sorrow with repentance. That's one thing that we need to come to Christ. It's not good enough just to come to church. It's not good enough just to pray before your food or you know, grab your Bible once in a while and read it. The Bible says that we have to bring forth fruits of repentance. Like I said before, Jesus doesn't play games. He's very direct. If you read through the Bible, he's very clear. You know what? If you want to follow me, here's how it happens. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to come to the Father, you've got to come through me, first of all. I'm not going to play any games with you. There's no back door. There's no side door. You've got to come through me. And to come through me, to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, which is very commonly known in that, that time, in that era, as an instrument of death. That's what it is. It wasn't a nice little gold thing that you wear around your neck. That's not what they're talking about. It's talking about something that's used to execute people. He says you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily. In other words, die to yourself every day. Then follow me. That's what's needed. The sign of the sun, the sight of this enormous army, and then in verse 31 here quickly, It says, he'll send out the angels with a trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds. The saving of the elect. The angels, the gatherers, the collectors of men. Matthew 13, we saw them gathering people for judgment. Here, they're going to gather them for glory. Zechariah tells us that two-thirds will die, but there's going to be a third that remains. See, God always has a remnant. So the Lord will gather people from all over the world and bring them into the kingdom. I mean, that's the Lord's description of His own coming. 
His own second coming. And then he quickly gives this parable. We're not going to go into this real far, but from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. They had fig trees over there. They still do to this day. And they understood that, hey, you know what? Seasons come, seasons go. Certain things happen at certain times. So he's giving them an illustration here. And then he says, basically, in verse 33, So also, when you see all of these things, what things? All these things that he just got done sharing with them from verses 4 all the way down. You know that he is near. At the very gates, he says. So he uses the illustration of a fig on a fig tree, knowing that, hey, summer's coming around the bend. You can just tell by looking at it. Well, in that day, when you see all this stuff happening, you better be ready for my second coming because I will be coming back. That's what he's saying. The message is very simple. You know the time is near. A lot of people argue over what this generation means. When he says, truly I say to you in verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things will take place. Some people go into all, well, it's 40 years, it's 70 to 80 years, all sorts of things. Some say it's Israel. I simply believe that it's, it's, it's those who are living during this time. That's what it is. Let's just take the simplest interpretation, which I think what he, you know, he's dealing with fishermen here, okay? He's not talking with, with aerospace engineers. So I don't think he's going to parse all this stuff out for them. He wanted something, he gave an illustration, something they would be simple to understand. So he's talking about the generation of people during the tribulation. Remember, it's only seven years, three and a half years of it's a great tribulation. When you see all this stuff starting to happen, at the most you got seven years or three and a half years. Either way, it's not a long period of time. A generation is not going to pass in that time. That's what he means. And then he closes off this little parable and he says in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away. But what? My words will not pass away. Isaiah 55, verse 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, this is God speaking, and shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I want you to ask yourself here this morning, where are you with all this? Where are you at? I mean, this is not a joke. This is serious stuff that we've been looking at. I mean, your eternal destiny hangs in the balance, beloved. And yet we know exactly how this is going to end because he tells us. Are you going to be part of the disaster here on earth? Or are you going to be part of the glory that's coming back? What are you trusting in? I want to ask you this morning, why wouldn't you cry out, to the Lord Jesus Christ for his mercy, for his grace, for his forgiveness. The Bible says today is a day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. It's your choice. I pray that God is prompting your heart. Father, we ask you this morning that, Lord, as we look at these events that are going to be taking place, it's almost as if we're looking at a Hollywood movie. 
we really can't comprehend such devastation. And on the other end, we can't comprehend such glory, being able to return with the risen Lord back to earth in all His glory, in all our glory, those who've trusted Christ. I pray for those who may be here this morning who have yet to put their faith or trust in You. Lord, I wish it, it was so easy that I could just pass out a card and you could sign the card and, well, magically you become a Christian. You become a follower of Christ. It's not that easy. This is a divine transaction that has to take place. But God doesn't do it without your participation. God is not going to drag anybody into heaven one day. We're all going to go willingly. So I ask you this morning, what have you done with Christ? Maybe you know about Him. Maybe you know some. Have you done your due diligence to really investigate all these things? Are you just taking kind of a shot in the dark, hoping maybe all this stuff isn't going to happen? And that maybe when you die, you'll just lay there and rot in the casket, and that's the end of it. The Bible has a different story. And I believe the Bible to be God's word to us. I believe God is holy, therefore he cannot lie. I pray that if you have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ, that you would at least investigate these things. That you would open your heart to the Lord. That he would draw you to himself. God, we ask that you would do that. It's not by the active will of man that that we are saved. It's by your power. And Father, we thank you for that. You haven't left it up to us. So Lord, we ask you to work in the hearts of those who've yet to trust you. Draw them, show them their need of a Savior. And Lord, for us believers, I pray that we would just feel a little spring in our step, that one day you're going to return for us, take us back to glory. And We're not here to be judged with the rest of the earth. But Lord, we will come back with you in glory. What a glorious day that will be. Father, we pray that until that day comes that we will do everything within our power to live lives that are honoring, that are righteous, that are holy. Can't do it on our own. That's why you gave us the Holy Spirit. We need to depend on you every, every second of every day through the power of the Spirit in us. I pray that we would have broken hearts for those who have yet to come to Christ, that we do our due diligence in reaching out to those who have yet to Embrace the Savior. Whether it's giving them a track, giving them the gospel message, inviting them to church, however we can do it, I pray that we would be diligent in our duty as those in your army. Pray that you bless the rest of our day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.